Welcome to Menlo Church, and thank you so much for joining us today. We're so glad that you're tuning in to Menlo Church online. We at Menlo believe that everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. Enjoy the, today's message. Well, I want to welcome everybody at all of our campuses all around the Bay Area. Folks joining us online, I'm so glad that you're doing that. Everybody here, you look so incredibly well-rested. Uh, my name's John. I'm a sinner. We're in the series called Away, and we're looking together at how do we arrange our lives around being with and following Jesus, one step at a time. The foundation is give up. I surrender my life and my will to the care of God, not my will, but yours be done. And then we, we looked at thinking up, having my mind renewed with great thoughts, especially by engaging with scripture. And then look up, don't go through life in my own power, but talk with God constantly, particularly asking God, give me the knowledge of your will for this moment and the strength to carry it out. And then we move towards in, love in through community with each other, lean into accountability with one another, Last week, look in, look inside, self-examination and confession. And these are not steps we're trying to get through in one series. These are steps that we will work over and over together as a congregation as we try to live in the Jesus way. Uh, now, in these last three weeks, we move from up and into out. We look at how engaging in the world outside of ourselves shapes us. And today... The step is work out, that is work out your faith in the ordinary events of your life and your work, particularly by your patient acceptance together with God of everyday trials. And in a phrase, I would summarize this step as patiently endure problems. One of the most important parts of the way of Jesus involves trials, pain, problems, suffering, how I understand and deal with suffering has a huge influence on the person that I will become. And the real question with problems, pain, suffering is not, will it happen? The question is, does it mean anything? There's a 19th century German philosopher named Arthur Schopenhauer, and he ended up having a very large influence on the modern world. He was an atheist, and he was so famous for his bleak outlook on life that he wrote one work called Studies in Pessimism. He wrote that existence is so bleak that if we were rational, we would never have children so that they would be spared the burden of existence. Uh, this is a picture of him, and I'll give you a few quotes from Schopenhauer. Uh, he wrote, today is bad, and day by day it will get worse until at last the worst of all arrives. Life is hard, and then you die. He was kind of the original guy. He taught that the world is meaningless. Human life must be some kind of mistake. There's a snappy bumper sticker for you. <laughs> Good way to greet the kids in the morning. Human life must be some kind of mistake. He actually said that uh, our main comfort is the thought that when things are bad for us, they're worse for other people. 
He wrote, the, the best comfort in affliction will be the thought of other people who are in a still worse plight than yourself. We are like lambs in a field waiting under the eye of the butcher. Does he look happy? <laughs> He's having a bad hair day when he posed for this picture. Not a guy that got invited to a lot of parties. Uh, he himself was arrogant, paranoid. He slept at night with a loaded pistol. Once when an old woman was chatting outside of his room, he was so irritated, he pushed her down a flight of stairs. The courts made him pay compensation while she lived for the next 20 plus years. But that problem did not move him to self-examination or compassion. When she died, he got a copy of her death certificate, and I'm not making this up, and wrote on it the Latin phrase, obit annus, abit onus, which means the old woman dies and the burden goes. Don't have to pay that anymore. He died lonely, selfish, and miserable. He made one other observation I want to reflect on. He wrote, life presents itself as a series of tasks. Now this, I believe, is profoundly true. Life is, it presents itself really as a series of tasks, challenges, problems. You're born, you have to take your first breath, you have to be fed and clothed and cleaned and moved around. You gotta get somebody else to do that so you learn to cry. And then you have to learn to walk and talk and dress and feed yourself. And then you have to go to school and learn to read and write and do math and you're given problems and take tests and get grades so you can get a job and find a place to live and fix meals and wash dishes and clean house and navigate traffic and pay bills and maybe have little children. And then they start crying till you do all these things for them and pay for them to go to school. Maybe even bribe somebody to get them into a really good school. <laughs> and then you get old and then you die, which is a bummer, or eventually Somebody else has to feed you and clean you and dress you and move you, and then you die. And, and here's one line of thought. Studies in pessimism, suffering is meaningless. Life is hard and then you die. Or there's another line of thought, kind of a minority report. This comes from a man named Jesus, from James, a man named James, who was a brother of Jesus and actually the leader of the early church. And here's what he wrote. Consider it pure joy. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This, I submit, is an outrageously optimistic way of looking at problems, pain, difficulty, suffering. But it's optimism with a twist. It is not optimistic at all about circumstances. James doesn't say, if you follow Jesus, nothing bad will happen to you. He says, when something bad is happening to you, something good can be happening in you. Now, we want, human nature, good things to happen to us. I want promotion, money, health, approval, reputation, attractiveness, security. God wants good things to happen in us. The formation of a character of love and courage and joy and simplicity and truthfulness and generosity and peace and poise. And he uses our circumstances. Life presents itself as a series of tasks to form our character. So I want to look at this passage, these words from James, really a word, a thought at a time, to learn 
how we can follow in the way of Jesus and grow gloriously, spiritually, by patiently enduring problems together with God. James says, whenever you face trials. Now, what's a trial? Well, a trial is when something happens that you wish had not happened. Any event that makes me worry or irritated or afraid or sad or robs me of joy. You remember the very first step in the Jesus way is we surrender our wills. A trial is when my will gets thwarted. That's a trial. My will is thwarted. And James says, just to be real clear about this, when you face trials of many kinds, that could be translated of any kind, all kinds, every kind of trial. Trials I cause, trials somebody else's causes for me. Old problems, new problems. Short-term problems, long-term problems. Big problems, little problems. Relational trials, money trials, emotional trials, vocational trials, financial trials, spiritual trials. Often when people think about suffering and faith, they think of major suffering, life-threatening diseases, loss of a loved one, for example, and wonder, where is God in the middle of this? That's a very important topic. We've talked about that before. We will talk about that one again, but that's not this step. This is the way 101 for beginners. This step is about how to use trials for spiritual growth. So for this step, the place to start is with ordinary trials of everyday life. Life presents itself to us as a series of tasks. And the place to start is by actually noticing all of the ways that I experience my life as a task, as a trial, as a challenge, as a difficulty, starting with just getting up in the morning. How come I couldn't sleep better? It's too early to get up. I'm still tired. I don't want to get up. I have too many things to do. That's a trial. And then it's time to eat. I'm eating too much. I don't like my body. How come I can't cut down? How come I don't have stuff that I want to eat? And then getting dressed. I have nothing to wear. I have too much to wear. I have too much clutter in my closet. Nothing makes me look good. And then commuting. Rude drivers. Stop and go traffic. Too much time in my car. Having a car I don't like. Having to make payments on my car. Having to take my car in to get fixed, not having a car, and then work. Work is the main place we have problems because it's where we spend most of our waking hours. That's why in the calendar for this week, you'll find mostly statements from Scripture about my work, too much to do, too many emails to answer, that coworker I don't like, being interrupted, having a project go badly, not getting a promotion that, of course, I deserve, getting a bad annual review, feeling underpaid or underrecognized, or I have a fight with my spouse, or I don't have a spouse, or my kids are in trouble at school, or making bad choices about friends, or alcohol, or sex, or lying, or they're anxious, or they're depressed, or I'm a young mom, and I'm exhausted, and my husband doesn't help, or I'm a husband, and I feel overwhelmed. Anybody here have any trials going on in your life? Now, very often, what is a trial for me is embarrassingly trivial, honestly, we often call them first world problems, commute problems, or I had a bad golf game, or I had a bad hair day, or the Wi-Fi is not working speedily on my plane flight. Imagine how that would sound to the vast majority of the human race throughout human history. I'm in a seat 30,000 feet above the air, flying at hundreds and hundreds of miles an hour to go to some place that other people never would have visited, and my capacity to be connected with and get information from all around the world is taking place more slowly than what I want. What a horrible thing to have to be me. 
the, the remote control doesn't work, and I have to walk all the way over to the TV to change channels. God have mercy. The lines on the ski lift during my vacation are too long. My masseuse used the wrong pressure. I left my phone charger at home. What will I do? I can't remember the stupid passwords for my stupid private accounts that let me buy new stuff all over the world. Anybody here ever get irritated by the password problem? James uses the word whenever. Whenever you face trials. Whatever is a trial to you, however embarrassingly trivial that might be when I stand back and look at it. When do you face trials? All the time. From one moment, to life presents itself as a series of, it just does. We don't notice this. We think we're entitled to grouse about them. This is life. Four members of my family are playing at a game. This is recreation. My wife and I are on the same team. I give her a clue, and my wife misses it, and our team loses. And I could be joyful because we're playing against my children, my own flesh and blood, who I want to be bright and competent. And am I cheerful? No. I want to beat them, those little children. I'm driving, talking with God, thinking about this message about problems. And as I'm thinking, I drift into the crosswalk when the light turns red. Pedestrians are trying to cross, so I quickly back up. In my hurry, I don't notice there's a car behind me. And the driver lays on her horn, not a little friendly, sanctified warning toot, but a prolonged honk, the honk of shame. And everybody is looking at me. I'm not joyful. I'm not growing. I'm not finding God. I want to say to everybody, hey, I was talking to God about a sermon to my congregation, so quit looking at me, you stupid people. When James uses that word, face many trials, whenever you do, it means an unexpected encounter. So this seventh step is different from all the other ones that we have looked at so far, because I can initiate when I surrender. I can initiate thinking up with scripture. I can initiate looking up in prayer. I can initiate acts of fellowship, not trials. They just come. That's a real good thing. That's part of why trials are so fundamental to spiritual growth. I can get kind of self-righteous about, look at how I'm initiating surrender, prayer, scripture. Not, not trials, they just come. When do they stop? When will you stop having problems? When you die. The number of problems, the rate at which they come, will actually go way down when they put your body in the ground. But probably not till then. This is kind of striking, especially for us. In the modern world, through technology, education, wealth, science, we are, more than humans at any other time in history, often quite surprised, even offended, when suffering comes. Why did that happen? It should not. There ought to be a law. Somebody should be fired. Somebody should be sued. For people following the way, things are quite different. Jesus' friend Peter wrote, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Life presents itself as a series of tasks, problems, challenges. But rejoice, that word again, inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. The goal of life is not to stop having problems. In fact, this brings us to what it is that James does command. There is a command in his words. Whenever you face trials of all kinds, consider it pure joy. Seriously? You think James really meant this? 
This is just the kind of stuff religious people write. Not even, you know, try to avoid problems. Although, of course, often we'll do that, and it's very good to try to solve a problem, figure it out, make it go away. Not, not even try not to whine too much about your problems. And you might think it's just religious cliche, except then you stop and think he was writing to people who knew about suffering. In the ancient world, half of all children died before they reached adulthood. On average, parents in the ancient world who loved, who got just as attached to those little lives as you and I do, would bury half of their children. And their hearts would break. Most of the people James wrote were poor, dirt poor. Many were slaves, lived and died, not owning their own lives, their own bodies. They were scattered because of religious persecution from which James himself suffered and eventually died. Consider. Oh, this is a real important word. This is a real big part of being a follower of Jesus. It is something that you do in your mind. To consider has to do with how I evaluate or discern or understand or grasp or assess or interpret what is happening to me, not through conventional wisdom, not the way that everybody else does, but through the lens of faith and what might be called the practice, maybe even the virtue of considering is found actually all over the New Testament. This is the Jesus way. Paul says, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Human ego does not naturally do that. Paul says, Christ Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. We talk a lot in our day about privilege and how it is to be considered. Right of Hebrews said, Moses considered suffering for Christ to be more valuable than the treasure of Egypt. Abraham considered God to be faithful when life didn't look like it. Paul considered his former self-sufficient, glorious resume to be rubbish when nobody else did. When Paul was unfairly arrested and a prisoner at trial on his way to imprisonment and eventually death, he said, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to be standing before you today. No other prisoner would have said that to Agrippa. But Paul did, because he could point Agrippa to Jesus. Consider. You could translate this word, reconsider. Run the numbers a second time. Review your assessment of current reality through the lens of confidence in our friend Jesus and his glorious way of life. And it will cause you to take your problems out of the sheer debit category, still pain there, still hardship pain there, still confusion there, but also you put them into the asset category. Something glorious is going on. Consider means I don't just look at my problems, I look through my problems and see God is at work in them. And therefore, when you face problems, consider it joy. Now, the Greek word for joy meant joy. And James doesn't stop there. Not just consider it joy, consider it pure joy. Consider it unalloyed joy. Consider it all joy. It's almost, it's almost like he'd been listening to his brother Jesus, who once said, what happiness is yours when people blame you? And he'll treat you. 
and say all kinds of slanderous things against you for my sake. Be glad then. Yes, be tremendously glad. Seriously, Jesus. Seriously. This isn't irony. This is the carefully considered assessment of a brilliantly impactful man. And the obvious question to you and me in our day is, why? Why would anybody do this? Why should we consider it all joy? Because you know that the testing of your faith, life presents itself as a series of tasks, challenges, problems, produces perseverance, is creating something, a character that isn't thought of as very much now, doesn't get you on magazines now, doesn't earn you money now, but will be revealed in the truth in the kingdom and eternity as something unimaginably glorious. You know, the testing of your faith is producing something. Not that God sends testing, but God uses testing to make us not weaker but stronger, not discouraged but encouraged, not defeated but developed. See every trial when it comes as a moment when the care of God will be confirmed to me. Now again, I'm not talking this week about massive suffering undergone by heroes, although I know some of you are. I know some of you are. Just start at a real small moment-to-moment scale. Life presents itself. Finding the care of God in everyday trials. God in this traffic jam. God in this computer crash. God in this snarky email. God in this colicky baby. God in the problem that might be sitting next to you right now. Don't look, but find God there. During this series on the way, I was off one morning. I was working on prayer, looking up, step three. And I was having kind of a hard time because of a trial that involves a conflict that's been difficult to resolve. Doesn't involve anybody here from this church, but it won't quite go away. And uh, it keeps recurring in a way that's not up to me, but that I don't like. And I was praying, but then my mind would drift to thinking about how much life would be better if I didn't have this problem. And I got a phone call, and it was from my wife. And I decided to answer it just to let her know I was praying and I would call her back. And she said, it's okay, I just called because I wanted to connect you with you and I wanted to hear your voice and I wanted you to know I love you. And then she hung up. And my next thought was of God saying, John, I wanted you to have that phone call because that is my heart for you. That is my word for you. I want to connect to you. I want to hear your voice. I love you. It was God speaking to me through my wife. Now, anytime my wife talks to me, is that always 100% of the time God speaking to me? Yes, of course it is. I'm not stupid. But it occurred to me in that moment, uh, in this moment, in this problem, in this circumstance, I, I can remain connected to God. I can trust that I'm in the care of God. I can trust that nothing can separate me from the love of God. I can keep seeking a surrendered will. And if I do that, and if I don't become on the one hand bitter or resentful or vengeful or angry in my thoughts, and at the same time, if I don't become afraid or anxious or, or try to appease or placate somebody, if I can be honest and loving and courageous and authentic, 
And when I don't know how to do that or what to do, I ask God, God, would you give me the knowledge of your will and the strength to carry it out? If I do that, I will grow much closer to God and much stronger in my soul, at the core of my being, in my capacity to live and endure and love and have poise and confidence than I ever would if I didn't have this problem. I can do that on the inside, and I, even I in my weakness, can consider it joy. God, bring it on. I can do this, God, with you. Bring it on. This is why Paul said, I consider, that word again, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed, not to us, that too, but in us, in you. This is a fundamentally different perspective for viewing life. We think that pure joy is having great circumstances regardless of our character. James teaches that pure joy is having great character regardless of our circumstances. Circumstances come and go. Character will be forever. Pain is temporary. Joy is eternal. God is not in the circumstance design business. God, give me this house, this spouse, this blouse, get rid of that louse. God is in the character formation business. And every single problem, whatever else it may be, is an opportunity to find God's presence and God's care and God's faithfulness, to gain self-awareness about my true condition, including my weaknesses, and to be grown by God to a stronger capacity for faithful endurance and persistence and a love of what is good and right and noble and beautiful and true. Now, I want to tell you one more part of James's story where I think maybe the turning point of his life came, because it might be the turning point of your life, too. James, as I mentioned, was Jesus' brother. And you might think when it comes to having faith and trusting and considering problems joy, James had kind of an unfair advantage, because he got to grow up with Jesus, be around him from earliest days. But the scriptures point actually in quite a different direction. We're told that early in Jesus' ministry, when his family heard about what strange things Jesus was doing and saying, his family went to take charge of Jesus, for they said, he, Jesus, is out of his mind. That was James. James thought his brother Jesus had lost it. And then even well into Jesus' ministry, we're told at one point, For even his own brothers did not believe in him. That was James. He thought his brother was deceived. I was thinking about what it would be like to be a sibling in that family. Question, how many of you had siblings, brother or sister? How many of you ever had at least one fight with your sibling? I was thinking it may not have been easy to have Jesus for a big brother. Jesus, you always think you're right, don't you? Well, Jesus, who do you think you are, God? Well, just has to stand there. Even on the cross, you might know if you're a Bible person, uh, Jesus hands his mother over to the care of his disciple, John. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Most likely because none of Jesus' biological, Mary's biological sons believe. And Jesus is crucified. And James has to watch how his mother, Mary, is crushed. This is the end. It's the old story. 
Suffering wins, death wins, despair wins, studies in pessimism. Except, Paul writes that Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Then he appeared to the twelve, Paul writes. Then he appeared to a larger group that Paul calls the apostles. And then he appeared to what Paul calls 500 of the brothers and sisters, many of whom are still alive at the time of this reading. And then Paul singles out one single man by name. Then he appeared to James. Wonder what that was like. What did Jesus say? Everybody else on Paul's list, Jesus came to know as an adult. This was his baby brother. They grew up together. They were kids together. I wonder if it was something like this. Jesus just shows up. Hey, Jim. What's up? Turns out you are right. I am God. Go figure. I believe Paul specifically noted, then he appeared to James because that was the moment that changed everything for James. And I imagine James falling to his knees. Jesus, it's all true. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry for the pain I caused you. I'm sorry for not believing. I'm sorry I let you, my brother, go to the cross alone. I could have been with you. I could have stood with you. And he begins to list all the sins that one brother commits against another brother. And then Jesus lifts up one nail-scarred hand. Stop. Forgiven. Who do you think I am? Brother. Death to life. Doubt to faith. Despair to hope. Now, this could be you. If you've never done this, this can be the day when you confess your sin, your guilt, and place yourself by faith in the care of Jesus, in the family of Jesus, and become his follower and move from death to life. You can do that today. We're having baptism in a couple of weeks at the end of this series, and that's a chance where if you've made this decision to follow Jesus, you can stand up and say, hi, my name's John. I'm a sinner, but I'm a forgiven sinner. I'm a recovering sinner, and we will cheer you on. Because here's the thing. If the ultimate and unfair suffering, the crucifixion, from which we get the word excruciating, if that could finally turn out to be nothing more than the preamble to the resurrection, the most joyful moment of James and Jesus' life, then yes, 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 consider it pure joy. When you face many trials of many kinds, life presents itself as a series of tasks. Consider it pure joy. So go, practice this week, starting now, any moment when a worry or an irritation or an interruption or a bill or an argument or bad news or loss or insult or fear or trouble comes your way when you leave here and the donut holes are gone or it takes too long to get out of the parking lot or you suddenly find yourself flooded with doubts, consider it joy. Let the process go on. Ask God for his comfort and care. Ask God for his presence and poise. Find him there. Laugh at your circumstances, even death itself, in light of the glory self God will one day turn you into if only you will let him 
because you have a resurrection coming. You hold on. You look for God. You keep the faith. You don't quit. You don't despair. Glory is going to be revealed in you. Consider it joy. Consider it joy. Consider it pure joy. Let's pray. Let's pray. Bow your head and close your eyes. And if you never have made this decision before, I want to give you a chance right now to become a follower of this man, Jesus. You pray this prayer. Jesus, today, now, I confess my sin, my guilt, my regret. I ask you to forgive me, not through anything I would merit, but as a gift of your grace poured out on the cross. I invite you, Jesus, to come live in my heart. I commit myself to follow you all the days of my life as you help me and then to be with you forever. And again, nobody looking around. If you have made that decision, I'd love to pray for you. So just raise your hand right now, wherever you are, just between you and God. Yep, I see you. Yep, 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 yep. Praise God. Thank God for that. Yep, up in the balcony. Yep, on the side rows. God, thank you that in this world that is so filled with pain and suffering, they do not get the last word. Guilt, sin, death do not get the last word. Thank you for our friend Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in with us today. We hope you feel inspired, maybe even challenged by what you heard in the message today. Maybe figure out how you might want to apply that to your life this week. Please join us again and follow us on social media to find out all the latest happenings here at Menlo Church. We'll see you next time.